Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to episode 11 of season 2 of Homo Sapiens. Do you like my chipper tone this week? Yes, I do. You are chipper. Do you know why that is? Because you're going to LA. No, it's because I've been doing DIY. It's what makes me happy. Can I tell you what's not making me happy? The dog whining. She's going to whine throughout this whole thing. I'm just going to tell you now she won't shut up. It's like you've got a crystal ball. Top of the agenda. William, what the hell's going on with your drains? Oh, my lordy me. Over Esme, here get off the cake. To be honest, the shit hit the fan. <laughs> um, it, it went into the neighbour's garden. Uh-oh. Yeah. So said neighbour came round, understandably perturbed. I don't know the exact words, but it's probably like there is crap bubbling up into my garden. Um, in my front room. My brother jumped on it like a jack-in-the-box, got the people out. The So currently, my, my beautifully designed garden is has a lot, got a lot of mud around it, but we've solved the problem. And you'll be pleased to know that there will be no more smell now. Brilliant. Yeah, which is perfect timing for the end of the season. (laughs) (laughs) Who have we got coming up this week? We've got Johan Hari. And do you know how I heard about him? Speak on, dear friend. He did a TED talk about addiction. To summarise, probably quite badly, he was saying people who have addiction should not be excluded, they should be given love. Which seems like pretty sensible stuff to me. He's an interesting character because this he's written this whole book about called Lost Connections, which is about, he thinks, the spike in depression is to do with us losing connection in society. There's this phenomenon called Facebook depression, which is a lot of evidence for, which is the longer you spend on Facebook, the more depressed you are. And one of the ways I understood that was by going to the first ever internet rehab centre. It's in Washington State. <gasps> the first thing I noticed, actually, it's in the woods in Washington State. And I'm ashamed to say, first thing I noticed when I got there, was no I reception. my phone. I was like, uh, fuck! Johan yeah! <laughs> <laughs> was sort of Owen Jones mm. 10 years ago. Mm. He was like the bright new hope for, for a liberal voice in Britain. And as a result, perhaps those people can be seen as quite issues-based. And actually, he spoke loads about his own childhood and stuff and very funny telling that story about his mum and dad and mm. things and he really opened up about things that have happened to him as a kid that mm. have informed what's happening to him now you know i had when i was a child experience with quite extreme acts of violence and 
it's about release from shame. It's not so much the childhood trauma, the childhood trauma is bad, it's that you feel ashamed about it, you internalize it, you think that it was your fault, that you deserved it, because shame destroys you. It's a ter it's a toxic psychological state. But he's one of those people, when you mention him, people get a bit of a bee in their bonnet about him. Like, people can react quite strongly to the idea of him. And I think that some people, because things like addiction and depression are, they can be very emotional topics. I think that people don't like to hear that there's one way of sorting mm. it because the truth is it's very, very complicated. He's by no means saying he's got the answer. He's just challenging a lot of... I suppose traditional medicines ideas of how you treat it and I'm well behind that who knows if he's right or not I don't think Johan would say that he was I think he would say this is what I think and I think there's a lot of truth in what he says um, particularly when he said if you want to feel better do something for someone else not yourself oh I thought you were going to say if you want to feel better buy a scented candle did he say that? no even though he we asked him to we, I Chinese burned him and he still wouldn't say <laughs> Chinese burned just tell everyone to send us a candle <laughs> Coming up in a bit, I'll talk with Johan Hari. You've been catfished on Twitter. Someone's set up a fake Instagram account and a fake Twitter account. Oh my God, that's wonderful. Is that wonderful? I reported them. Well done. It's Will Young Offishy. Will Young Offy. <laughs> and, um, uh, why, do people why do people do that? I don't know. So they just made like an identical copy of your Instagram account and your Twitter account. So I reported them. Well done. Do we go to court? We are. We're going to court. What are we going to wear? Which brings me straight on to what are we going to wear? It's a penny collar. It says, I'm innocent. <laughs> it says, you channel Winona Ryder oh. shoplifting. What else has been going on in your life this oh, week, okay. William? Oh, well, you know lots has been going on. I'll tell you everything that's gone on this week. It was press night. What was press night for, though? I don't get it. <laughs> I was so constricted. Chris, sometimes I feel like I'm talking to a wall. <laughs> I know. It just goes in one ear and out the other, Do you know what I mean? It? What I would prefer in the future yeah. is that you would remember that I'm in a show called Strictly Boring, the musical. Oh, I see. Sorry. It's on in the Piccadilly Theatre, uh. Denman Street in London. Mm-hmm. Press night out the way. Mm-hmm. And I've got to be careful about Robin Young, because Robin Young is very sensitive and lovely, mm -hmm. but he will just accidentally drop it in there you know what I mean yeah. oh hello darling was, well didn't like you in the times did they you know so it would just be something as thingy as that before I get a chance to go I'd rather you didn't tell me Robin yeah 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 he will say it you you like full lockdown to know nothing absolutely you? like well I didn't think they'd comment on your weight in the Guardian you know it would be something like that and <laughs> well yeah somebody had to say it darling <laughs> we all knew you were singing flat but <laughs> So, <laughs> goggling um, wasps, as I thought, was a little harsh. <laughs> so, I just, I just, you know, have to watch out that Robin do won't do that. But yeah. I think he knows. I so I've been at my mum's, and we've been putting up pictures in her house. Drilling, I've been drilling walls. Drilling walls. Yeah. So I'm so happy. How do you know what bit to use in the drill? I don't. I just, <laughs> I just have a go, and actually. If you were to take any of the pictures off the wall, you might find a few missholes <laughs> behind. I always quite like that. Because it's like, done is better than perfect. Completely. That's so, the way I approach fashion. Yeah. <laughs> so I just bash it in, have a go, have fun with it. I'm going to tell you something now that I think is going to make you squeal like a little, little piglet. <laughs> <laughs> and there's only a few things that could make me do that. And I don't think you're going to do one of them. <laughs> I am sitting down. <laughs> I went to see 
I went to see that little cottage with the thatched. Yeah, I know. No. Chris has just shoved a little mini tomato into his mouth. <laughs> In true Chris fashion, it missed my mouth, though. It missed his mouth. Even though I was still holding it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he basically, he was about two inches away from his face and the tomato went into his cheek. <laughs> oh, God, go on, so. It's thatched, it's beautiful. And I went with Annabelle Young, who's great. Drives like a banshee on crack, I tell you. <laughs> but my God. People in the country drive like maniacs. But go on. Anyway, we went to see the house. Mm. Then the woman said, yes, they will take some money off because it needs the thatch redoing. Uh-oh. What did I say? I can thatch. I can thatch. No, I know I can't thatch. Yeah. But my friend sent me a link to how you can thatch. Okay. That was you. Was it? Yes. Don't I you remember? Did I? Oh, the thatching course. Yeah, yeah, the sorry. The thatching course. So I'm having beginning of season three, Homo sapiens. We're thatching a cottage. Thatch party. <laughs> you know, like a painting party. Yeah. You get everyone to come round. Oh, yes. You get 20 of your friends who are all as unskilled at thatching as you are. Yes. Hand them some hay and off you're all up a ladder, please. Hand them some hay. Here's a staple gun. F- yeah, feel free to smoke. It's absolutely fine. <laughs> Twitter, this week... Careful who you're talking to. Why? Might be another me. Will Young Offy has been in touch saying, don't want to do this podcast anymore. Please transfer £5,000 to... Um, we were talking about dating. You've been on a date. So we thought... I'm going on a date tonight. Are you? Mm. Date number D. With the same person. That's French for two. Um, <laughs> romantique. Is that why you're talking French? Bless you, uh, that's a French for two, actually. <laughs> Where are you? Obviously not exact place, but what's the vibe of the date? Are you going for dinner, drinks, um, park? Or is it just round the back of the loser again? <laughs> I think we're going to go to... It'll be my reenactment of a Grundon. Esme, just come up. Come <laughs> sit on my lap then. Um, I'm going to meet him at the station. Oh, that's yeah. nice. Take from there. Probably go to the pub. I was going to go to the cinema because oh. I want to see the Avengers. Yeah. But that's going to go no. Yeah, that's interesting. Some people say no to cinema. The film was... Cinema dates are weird because you spend two hours with someone and you haven't seen them and then you leave. You don't... Uh, well, no, then you talk afterwards. Yes. So anyway, I should be going on a date. We had a question, though, for people on our Twitter, which was, what have been your best and worst dates? Wow, wow, wow. Well, we muse on our ones. Let's read out some of yours. Susie at Scroozy. Worst, guy asked me out, offered to take me to a party. When I arrived, he revealed it was fancy dress. He was dressed as a lamppost. I'd marry him for that. Best, walk along a beach and surprise picnic. I married him. Someone not telling you that it's fancy dress though, oh, and they yeah. come as a lamppost. Maybe she didn't see him for ages because she thought he was a lamppost. <laughs> <laughs> Abby, worst date. First meeting was a guy who walked up to me, looked me up and down, then went, Nope. And walked away, which, as you can imagine, is everyone's ideal outcome for a dating experience. I've had a lot of people have that happen to them. That's really bad. If I went on a date with someone and I didn't fancy them, I would still stay for the entire date. Yeah, I'd, well, I'd feel bad. I'd even kiss them. I have done that occasionally. I once kissed someone because I wanted them to shut up. <laughs> yeah, but that was during the Jeremy Corbyn interview, and I yeah. think uh, fair enough. <laughs> I was going off piece. I thought you meant Corbyn. <laughs> I did. On the morning. Worst date. It wasn't my worst date, but one of my most funny dating experiences is when I went on a date. I met someone, snogged them, went on a date with them, 
we did have sex. I then saw him two years later in a restaurant and he was staring at me and I was like, oh God, it's that guy. And it was really quiet in there and everyone was like working away on their laptops. And he got up and he came over to the table and went, excuse me, um, do I know you from somewhere? Mm. <laughs> and I was like, um, maybe through my friend, uh, and, you know, said my friend's name. And he was like, no, it wasn't that. And I was like, I'm not going to say in front of a huge room of people all working on their laptops, clearly listening. We had sex. Isn't that terrible? And he didn't remember. He didn't remember. I think I'd remember who, I'd have, who I have had sex with. I would totally remember them all. Sent them all thank you letters. I've got their addresses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, someone Is says that grinder date we had, awful. Who's that? Philip. I don't remember him. You said you'd remember everyone you had sex well, with. Well, I need to, I can't see his face properly. That's what you said on the night. Um, Izzy P said, this is so funny, worst was speed dating at a pub in Chertsey and having to wait in a queue of women evacuating through the toilet window at half time. <laughs> that That's amazing. Me. Oh, actually, no, the worst I ever had was with someone and they brought their friend. Really? And I stayed on oh. the date. But do you know why that is? Why you stay in those weird scenarios? I think it's because you're almost trying to make it not weird when yes. it is weird. You know, like you try and stop a weird scenario becoming... You're like, oh, I'm just going to pretend I'm cool with this and then maybe it will all be okay. And then you're like, no, this is profoundly strange. Oh, it was awful. Worst, uh, Mar- Margie or Margie Essen being invited over for a home-cooked meal, beans on toast. When I asked for a napkin, I was handed one of his old T-shirts to use. Oh, my God. That's a bit weird, isn't it? I've been on two dates with people. I've gone back to their flat and it has been like Armageddon. Still stayed. I was just going to say, did you Still stay? Still stayed. Of course I bloody did. I was in zone 12. <laughs> I've been in some scrapes. <laughs> Didn't you have to climb up a wall once? That's exactly what I just remembered. I know. I went to this guy's house. We got to his flat and he was like, oh, I forgot my house keys. And I was like, right. And it was literally 4.30 in the morning or something. And he was like, oh, it's fine. My bedroom window's open. He started climbing up the side of this building. His room was three floors up. And I didn't even notice, but like, on the side of a building, there'll be a lightning conductor thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is a metal strip that runs down the side of the building. He decided to use that to shimmy himself up the building and got halfway between the floor and the window and suddenly the metal thing that he was holding onto started popping off the wall and it was like... And I was like, I'm going to watch this guy die and then the police are going to come and I'm going to have to say, I don't even know him. I I just was going home with him. Yeah. Anyway, somehow he managed to solve it. And then he got up in the window and we went into his house. But I quite like that. That's quite like, I'm enjoying that. That's a bit bad boy, isn't it? It is a bit bit, rebel. It's a bit... It was. It also was... Was it good sex? It was not good sex. It was quite strange. And I'm going to just throw it out there. I think a lot of gay men have a lot of issues around sex. So it's all can be a bit strange when you go back to people's houses and stuff. Oh, it's awful. It ain't like the films. No way. And on that note, that's why I've never filmed myself having sex. There is absolutely, no. in my head, I'm Pamela Anderson. Yes. And what's his name on the boat? In reality, if I was videoing it and I had to watch it back, I would not be no. looking like that. I watch other people having sex. Yes, I watch other people. Quite happy. Go I on. Not, in you, not, in you go, son. In the That's it. <laughs> Get him <Go>! up. <laughs> um, but no, absolutely no way. No, I don't want, I don't want to see my old moves that I do. <laughs> Keep them secret. Oh, I thought you were going to say moobs. 
my old moves. Coming up now is our interview with Johan Hari. He's an author, a journalist. He's written a new book called Lost Connections, which some people describe as a very radical new way of thinking about depression and anxiety. He came to my house here in South London. I laid on quite a spread and here it is. One coffee. Shut up, Chris. Here is my interview. (laughs) Deep and personal, one-on-one connection. My interview with Johan Hari. One of the reasons I was interested in writing about depression is that I'd experienced depression a lot and and the solutions that I'd been given, which were chemical antidepressants, hadn't worked for me. And I was looking at, well, what has worked? And I, and I look at lots of different programmes across the world that have worked. And one of them was just such a simple thing. So it is doctor surgery in East London called the Bromley by Bow Surgery. And what happened is... Loads of people were coming to the doctors there, explaining they were depressed and anxious. And when the doctors, the wonderful doctor who runs it, it's called Sam Everington, when he would listen to people and they would talk about their lives, you think, well, it's perfectly understandable that you're depressed. It's not some pathology in your brain. It's that something's gone wrong in your life. And he felt that just handing out drugs, he's not against giving people chemical antidepressants, but he felt that just handing out drugs was, there was something unethical about it because it was missing the point of what was really going on. So what Sam decided to do is think, well, he looked at one, the many things that are causing depression. We talk about nine in the book, nine things for which there's scientific evidence that, we're, that they're increasing our levels of depression and anxiety. But one is just loneliness, right? Mm. We are the most socially disconnected culture that has ever been in human history. And he thought, well, there's one thing we can do to reconnect people with purpose and meaning. So if you go to Sam and you've got depression or anxiety, he'll give you the drugs if you want them. But he'll also prescribe you to take part in a group, right? So one of the things they did is behind the doctor's surgery, there was a thing they called Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. It was just a shitty patch of land. Sounds like my garden. (laughs) (laughs) And they... um, I think I looked at a house there. (laughs) So they said to the... So they, um, they said to this, this group of uh, depressed and anxious people, will you just meet up and turn this into something beautiful? And what they did is they would meet up every week, uh, actually several times a week, and they just learned gardening. They, they didn't have, there was no pressure to talk about their depression, which often makes you feel even worse. It was just a space where they got to know it. These are often people who've been, one of them, Lisa, who I write about in the, in the book, she, she had been literally shut away in her house for seven years. And just that step of reconnecting with other people, with the soil, and one of the, there was a study of a similar program in Norway that found it was twice as effective as chemical antidepressants because it's dealing with this deeper, the, the deeper problems that are making us feel so bad. When did this start, this sort of desire to... Get well, to the bottom of it. Yeah, get to the bottom of it. It's partly, so when I was writing my book about um, addiction and the war on drugs, chasing the scream, I began to realise that the story we've been told about addiction is really false. And there's actually this very different way of thinking about addiction that's been tried in places and that has actually been an incredible success. So that can be confidence to think, okay, if I take apart this story I've got about depression, I'm gonna find a better story. And it's for gonna yourself. be Yeah, and for the other people I love and for the you know, for the it sounds pompous state, for the culture. And I think that central insight that human beings have an innate need for connection. And that's connection in many different forms. So I go as I say, I go through these nine different causes of depression. Seven of them are all disconnection from things that we need, right? When, because uh, when I first heard about these ideas, your brain goes, but hang on, you know, we've got Facebook and I've got zillions of friends on there and I chat and I know what all my friends from school are up to. Like, I'm very connected. Yes, yeah, so I wanted to investigate that. And, and it's not that I'm against social media, right? Of course, I'm on Facebook. The, you know, these are not, it, it has a place. Yeah. 
But there's this phenomenon called Facebook depression, which is a lot of evidence for, which is the longer you spend on Facebook, the more depressed you are. And one of the ways I understood that was by going to interview lots of scientists, but also by going to the first ever internet rehab centre. It's in Washington State. <gasps> it's super interesting. Obviously, I didn't go wow. there as an, uh, as an inmate, as a patient. I went there. The first thing I noticed, actually, it's in the woods in Washington State. And I'm ashamed to say, first thing I noticed when I got there, was no I checked my phone. I was like, uh, fuck! Yeah! <laughs> I was like, brilliant! <laughs> Updated your status. Oh my God, that's brilliant. So what's fascinating is spending time there and speaking to the, the they were all men there when I was there, but they're speaking to the men there. There's this woman who runs it called Hilary Cash. She's a doctor. She's a totally fascinating person. She was one of the first people to really identify internet addiction. She great happened name. to have an office. Mm. She's a great <laughs> love Great her. name. Yeah. And she explained to me this thing that I think is, is really important about this and really helped me to think about it. So these are young men. Uh, a lot of the people who go there are obsessed with things like World of Warcraft. So these multiplayer, not all of them, but a lot, some of them are just, you know, Googling things all the time, addicted to porn or whatever. And she said, why these games in particular? What happens is what these young men get out of these games is a way to meet these needs that are not met by the culture. So they get a community, mm -hmm. they get a tribe, they get a way of gaining status, mm -hmm. they, get, um, purpose. Th they get purpose and meaning, all the stuff that they're not getting from our environment. These are often kids who, grow I mean, there's an incredible study that found the average child in Britain spends less time outdoors than the average maximum security prisoner, because by law, maximum security prisoners have to have an hour and 15 minutes a day. The vast majority of British kids don't get that. These are prisoners, right? Mm -hmm. And they are finding meaning. Mm -hmm. And she said, and Hillary said to me, I thought it was so interesting, she said, what we've got to understand is, what this internet addiction is doing is it's trying to fill a hole. And that hole was there before the internet. I'm really interested in, if you look at when the internet arrives, it arrives at this moment when things like social connection had already collapsed, right? Uh -huh. And then this thing appears which looks a lot, it's like a parody of the thing we've lost, right? Mm. It, and to me, the relationship between social media and social life is like the relationship between porn and sex, right? Mm. If you're really sexually frustrated, you're not getting any, porn will do something for you. But you don't ever feel satisfied by no it, right? Connection. You don't. You don't. Mm. It's no connection. You're not, you're not touched. As you a don't, porn addict, okay. <laughs> you don't. You know. You don't. After having a wank over porn, you don't feel sated and satisfied and valued the way you do after sex when it goes well, right? The mm. the so and in a similar way, I think social media turning to it to fill this hole of what we've lost. There's very strong evidence the Facebook depression studies and others is not working. Now, this is interesting to me actually, because we do this podcast and I believe that people genuinely do find connection. I'm finding connection now talking, mm. you know, to the two of you. And it's come up time and time again that people do feel isolated on their own. And within um, the LGBTQ plus community, people feel very isolated. With social media and stuff, you get a lot of contact but not connection right so you have the, a lot of information passes your way from people you know but it's not the same and contact is a good thing for for, a, for in some way a bit but, like yeah, you're but saying it's not nutritious sex. Well, i think the way yeah. you have to look, exactly yeah. the, i think it's also the the um one of the people who really helped me to understand this is a guy at the university of chicago called john cassiopo who's a professor there do you ever john meet Cassiope. someone just called john smith <laughs> I think you're making these names up. It's the least yeah. interesting thing about I reckon it's one person name. that works, works out of a cafe in Bethnal Green. The, um, so John, what John says, he's, he's basically the world's leading expert on loneliness. He's done hundreds of studies on this. And, and he's proven that loneliness is really increasing and it is a major cause of depression and anxiety. And, and he was trying to think about why is this? He basically explained, if you think about the circumstances where human beings evolved, right, on the savannas of Africa, the reason why we are sitting here, the reason why there are humans in Clapham, mm. 
is because, not just Clapper, obviously, um, is because... It's debatable. (laughs) Is because, it's not because those human beings were smarter or because they were bigger than the beasts they killed. Often they weren't. It's that they could band together better than any of the other species, the large species. So they could cooperate in order to achieve goals, to look after each other. All of our instincts evolved to be in tribes. Mm -hmm. Bees need a hive. Humans need a tribe. Mm-hmm. And we are the first human beings ever to try to live without tribes, to try to live alone, you know, or imagining we're alone. And, and it goes back to the individualism we were talking about before. We even think it's a good thing, like, well, you, the only person who's going to look after you is you. Mm-hmm. And that is causing, because that doesn't fit with our human nature, it's like trying to put, you know, your left foot in your right shoe. Mm-hmm. That is causing, and if you think about it, in those circumstances on the savannas of Africa, if you were separated from the tribe, you were fucking right to feel depressed and anxious because you were probably about to die. That is a signal we learned to compel you back to the group. And again, this goes back to what we were saying before, which is about saying, actually, these, these instincts that we have, they're not irrational. They're not misfiring, right? They are signals that your life is not going the way it should. And that actually... that, that it's Very not- basic, in- primal instincts. Exactly. Well, I'm interested in, like, your life... Where did you grow up? You went to Cambridge. I grew up at the other end of the Northern Line from where we are now. I grew up in Edgware, which is the end of the Northern Line. It's kind of suburbs. Um, my, my dad's from a tiny village in the Swiss mountains. And my mum's from a kind of Scottish tenement. They met when they lived next door to each other in uh, Notting Hill, which is when it was not Notting Hill as it is now. Mm. And uh, she didn't speak any German or French. He didn't speak any English. And they, they had what my mother calls a series of one-night stands, which I've tried to explain to her as a concept that doesn't make sense. <laughs> and then uh, she got pregnant. They thought they had to get married. Uh, he learned English. She burst into tears and said, he seemed so nice when I couldn't fucking understand what he was saying. <laughs> um, but they're still together 50 years later, insanely. And my mum, in fact, the only thing I've ever written that my mum was really angry about, my mum was militantly Scottish. And years ago, it must have been... 2003 I was in New York to cover the Republican National Convention and for a play on the Sting song I called myself an Englishman in New York mm. and my mum phoned me the next day was like no fucking son of mine as an Englishman you cunt Amazing. she's got that Glaswegian thing of you know the word cunt is like a neutral word meaning uh, person or thing so if you said to my mother like how do you get to the post office from here she'd say ah, you go right over here you'll see a bunch of cunts standing there go left oh, I love it I love it that's the post office do you know what I mean like, also, like, I love the thing of referring to inanimate objects as cunts which happens yeah. often in Glasgow yeah. as well which is like the yeah like a toaster or something but so no so I grew up in that um, school, environment school did you yeah. excel in school no I hated school I, I, I remember very clearly when I was about when I started secondary school when I was about 11, I got given a timetable and it would say, you know, like, I don't know, two o'clock on a Thursday, you do technology or whatever. I remember very strongly feeling this of like, what the fuck? It, who are these people to tell me what I will be doing on <laughs> yeah. Thursday at two o'clock? This absolutely instinctive sense of rage that I was going to be told. I was like, fuck this. I'm not doing that. So I basically just refused to go most of the time. And it's a combination of uh, reading, watching a lot of Richard and Judy and hanging out in the arcades at um, the Trocadero. Although actually gave me a very profoundly distorted sense of my own attractiveness because I did not know until I started going there when I was like 13. And I didn't know that's a notorious hangout for rent boys, right? I didn't know that. It was at that time. It's not anymore. Was it? So I would go there. To it's a new off... meaning to that ride. That <laughs> <laughs> Pepsi so... Max ride. Remember that? <laughs> so I would go there to hang out, you know, and bunk off school. And men would just come up to me and offer to pay to have sex with me, which obviously I always said no. But I was like, 
oh my God, I must be really hot because like, <laughs> I just go out and then just offer to play to fans. Oh my God. And then obviously after a few years, I was like, quite a lot of my friends here seem to be like uh, <laughs> prostitutes. And I was like, oh, you're not that hot. So uh, very did you know you were gay then? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you knew from a young age. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were lots of um, problematic things about my childhood, but funny enough, being gay was one of the really positive things. About- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Like, I always knew they would be all right with they were they you know I always knew they'd be when did you come out I never really had a moment when I came out to them what I tried to do was loudly have sex with boys in the house in the hope that my mother, my dad was gone by then but he 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 was living in another country but in the hope that they would sort of figure it out okay, <laughs> so, but I mean like how did that work would you be like oh my god oh my god Peter you know <laughs> <laughs> well they would see like oh, a boy coming in and then it would be like yeah the main thing I think I've taken from being gay is an incredible sense of optimism because we've lived to see the most incredible transformation. I was showing, mm. the other day I showed one of my nephews some of the headlines, he's 17 now, I showed him some of the headlines that were the front page of the sun when we were like his age. Mm-hmm. And he literally couldn't believe it, right? He, he was literally like, did people mm. ring the police? Now, if the craziest UKIP counsellor mm. said those things on Twitter, they would have to stand down, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and so I think there's this, this, you know, I tell the story in Lost Connections about my friend Andrew, who, so at, in, in 1994, Andrew was diagnosed as HIV positive. He was a leading journalist in the US. He's British, but he, he was living in the US by then. And his first thought was, I deserve this. Mm. You know, he'd been raised in this very homophobic culture, Catholic family. And then he left his job and, it, and people were just dying all around him. This is before protease inhibitors and everything that ACT and then protease inhibitors. And he went to Provincetown, which is this lovely little gay town at the tip of Cape Cod where he, he had a house. And he basically went there to die. Mm. And he thought, okay, the last thing I'm going to do before I die is I'm going to write a book about a crazy idea. It's an idea no one had ever written a book about. He wrote the first ever book proposing gay marriage. Mm -hmm. It was called Virtually Normal. It's a great book. Mm. And it came out and people savaged him. Right-wingers savaged him saying he was a nutter. Left-wingers savaged him. A group called the Lesbian Avengers said he should be killed, saying he was like a sellout. He was, you know, wanted to turn gay people into heterosexuals, Mm. all of that. And and when I get pessimistic, I think, okay, I try to imagine going in a time machine back to 1994 to Provincetown and saying to Andrew, okay, you're not going to believe me, mm. but 25 years from now, a few things are going to happen. Firstly, you're going to be alive. Yeah. Great news. That's, yeah. not, that's not the best bit. Yeah. The Supreme Court of the United States will quote this book you're writing mm. 
in its ruling saying that gay marriage is mandatory across the United States. Mm. The next day, you'll be invited to the White House, which will be lit up in rainbow colors mm. by the president. By the way, that president will be black mm. to celebrate what you have achieved and because so many other people joined that fight, right? Mm. That would seem like the most bonkers science fiction to him then, right? It would be like me saying to you, you know, 25 years from now, we're gonna be invited by a transgender president to smoke crack in the Oval Office, right? It would just seem yeah. like, yeah, not that I want to mm. smoke crack in the Oval Office, but the, the other transgender president would be perfectly good. The, the, but you, you see the point I'm making, yes. right? So I think the main thing I took from being gay was you just don't know what's going to happen, right? Like incredible changes can happen really quickly. They can be for them. If enough people band together and fight for them, mm. we have lived through this incredible revolution because lots of really brave gay people, mostly in the generation before ours, came out, appealed to the decency of other people, and then loads of really admirable heterosexual people opened their hearts, listened to them, and changed mm. their minds. The, the things we've been talking about and connection and things, do you think there is a particularly, uh, it's an issue that is faced by the LGBT community, LGBTQ plus community? Yeah, sure. I think it's, dis so you, you talked to our friend Matt Todd, um, mm. These problems are disproportionately there for gay people. And I think there's a range of reasons why it's disproportionately true for gay people. I think gay people are more likely to be cut off from their families. I mean, things are getting a lot better, but more likely to be isolated. There's one cause that I think plays out disproportionately with gay people. It's the hardest cause to talk about. So there's all this evidence I learned about writing the book about how childhood trauma can cause adult depression. Mm -hmm. And it was actually discovered in, by accident, the evidence about this, which is really powerful evidence, was discovered by accident in a slightly weird way by this guy I got to know in, in San Diego. He's called Dr. Vincent Felitti. So basically in the mid eighties, <laughs> that's Felitti. his fucking name, what can I do? <laughs> so Vincent Felitti, so in the mid eighties, um, obviously they had this huge uh, obesity crisis in the US, huge, it's difficult to describe an obesity crisis without using words like huge growing, which seemed really separate. <laughs> but anyway, they had an obesity crisis and Kaiser Permanente, who were one of the main healthcare providers in, in California at the time, were uh, basically, well, like, we've got to figure out why this is happening. So they commissioned Vincent, who was a very distinguished doctor. They said, you just, we give you blue skies, research money, just go and figure out what the fuck is going on, right? Mm. So all these really obese people start coming to, re I mean, re people who weighed 400 pounds and more, coming to Vincent and he's listening to them. And one day he had this idea that seemed almost like stupid. So a few years before there had been all the hunger strikes in Northern Ireland where people had starved themselves to death in protest. Mm. And he was like, what would happen if really obese people just stopped eating and we just gave them vitamins mm -hmm. uh, and gave them nutrients? Would they just go, just lose weight until they got down to a normal weight and then we could, they could start to eat normally? And so he decided, obviously they did a lot of medical supervision, but they tried this and it did in fact work, right? So people who'd weighed 400 pounds get down to like 130 pounds. But then something happened that they hadn't expected. Really often, the women, there were mostly women on the program, there were some men, um, some of the absolute stars who lost the most weight would freak the fuck out, go out and just massively binge and really quickly put the weight back on. Yeah. And Vincent was like, well, what's going on? So he, he, he wanted to understand this. So he sits with a load of these women and he says, um, <clears throat> he's just listening to them and he, and, he, and he said to them, well, one of the women, I think he, he told me to call her Susan, that's not her real name. Um, he said to her, <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah, her real name was Tashawana. Yeah. No, uh, uh, he said to her, like, well, what, was there anything that, you know, the moment when you crack and you go, and she said, actually, yeah, there was this, um, in fact, what happened is, she, obviously, when she was very obese, men had not shown a sexual interest in her. 
And then as she lost weight, she found men starting to be interested. She'd actually, a, a colleague of hers had hit on her. And that was the thing where she freaked out and went and started compulsively eating. Mm-hmm. And, and then he has this longer conversations with Susan over time. And he said, well, let's go back to when, the question that he'd never asked before. Let's go back to when you started to put on weight. So I think in her case, it was when she was 11. Why was it when you were 11 and not when you were 12 or not when you were eight? Mm-hmm. What, did anything happen? And what we found is 55% of them described being sexually abused and described the weight gain as happening after the experience of sexual abuse or rape. And one of the women in the programme said to him, yeah, it made me realise overweight is overlooked and that's what I need to be. So this thing that had seemed like a pathology, a kind of madness, people putting on so much weight that they became really sick, he could see actually was performing a function, was protecting them, it was protecting them against something that we couldn't see, right? Mm. So this might we might think, why the fuck am I talking about this in relation to depression? Um, but the, but the, there's actually it led to this this other breakthrough, which I think is I, mean, I think that is interesting, but it's led to an even more interesting breakthrough. So Vincent knew that just this study of 300 people wasn't worth that much, and he got this funding to do a, what's quite a simple study. Basically, everyone who came for healthcare to Kaiser Permanente, so the equivalent of going to your GP, was given a questionnaire. And it just asked about two sets of things. The first was, did any of these things happen to you when you were a child? And it went through 10 bad things from like being neglected, being emotionally abused, being sexually abused. And then it went through and just said, have you experienced any of these problems as an adult? And it was things like addiction, depression, attempted suicide, obesity. Mm. They wanted to see what would be the matchups, what's the causation, what's going on. And what they found at first, people literally just could not believe the figures. So for every category of traumatic experience that you had as a child, you were radically more likely to be depressed, addicted, or obese, or commit suicide, attempt to commit suicide as an adult. So the figure was that if you had six of those categories of childhood trauma, you were five times more likely to be a depressed adult. And if you had seven of them, you were 3,100% more likely to try to commit suicide as an adult. Mm. So this showed that there's this extraordinary relationship between childhood trauma and these problems as an adult. And I found this quite hard to, for me, this was the hardest part of the book to research because, you know, I had, when I was a child, experienced some quite extreme acts of violence. And- um, Towards you? Yeah, yeah. And uh, my mother was ill, my dad was in another country and there was, uh, and so an adult in my life behaved in really shocking ways. Mm. And, I had never thought about that in relationship to my depression. Mm. I just had, it sounds stupid to say, I'd never thought about it in relation to that, but I genuinely hadn't. Mm. And the thing that really helped me with this, and this obviously I think disproportionately relates to gay people and that gay people for all sorts of reasons that Matt Todd writes about in his excellent book, uh, Straight Jacket, are more likely to experience various forms of Matt, childhood Matt trauma. Todd, it sounded yeah. like you said Mad Todd. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. Mad Todd's written another book. <laughs> <laughs> Matt is not Mad. Matthew no, Todd. The, uh, the, like a sort of local mafioso. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get Mad Todd round. <laughs> exactly, so Mad Todd has correctly identified <laughs> yeah. that this is a true behavior. But one of the things that was most helpful to me about what Vincent's research led to is that it's not like you're just broken. So it's very interesting. What they then did was the second stage of the study. Once people had identified when they came to their doctor that they um, had experienced these forms of childhood trauma, the doctors were told the next time they come in, just say to them, I see that you experienced X thing when you were a child. I'm really sorry that happened to you. That should not have happened. Mm. Would you like to talk about it? And some people wouldn't want to and some people would. But what they found is they then monitored people over time. What they found is an extraordinary fall in 
mental health problems just from being asked that once. Some of them were then referred to therapy where there was an even bigger fall. What Vincent thinks is going on there is it's about release from shame. It's not so much the childhood trauma, the childhood trauma is bad, it's that you feel ashamed about it, you internalize it, you think that it was your fault, that you deserved it. There's some interesting research about gay men during the AIDS crisis, closeted men died, I think, two years on average sooner than men who were not closeted, even when they got healthcare at the same stage of, the, of AIDS, because shame destroys you. It's a, tar- it's a toxic psychological state. The one thing I want to ask you about is the Wikipedia and plagiarism thing. I really felt for you in that scenario that there is a big theme of shame in that. And I think I find it hard that people have to wear that stuff throughout and continue wearing it in their career. But how did you process that? Because I think it's... I think when you fuck up, uh, as I did in the... so. Some people won't know what you're talking about. The, the, uh, so in some interviews I did, I used things that had been said in other interviews as if they'd been said directly to me or things that had been written down as if they'd been said directly to me. And I edited some people's Wikipedia entries in my own under a pseudonym and said some nasty things about people. I think when you fuck up, it should hurt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like we're saying, depression is a necessary response to things. Pain is a appropriate thing to feel when you've done something wrong and hurt other people and hurt yourself. So no, I don't, and I'm not going to tell a kind of uh, self-pitying story about that. I did something that's wrong. It's absolutely appropriate to criticise that and for me to pay a price for that. When you fuck up, it should hurt. Mm. But do you feel that it just sticks around with people? You know, and that's the thing. It should um, stick around. If you fuck up, it should stick around. I mean, you should demonstrate you're not doing it again. So, for example, with uh, the previous book I wrote and with this book, the audio for all the quotes in the book are on the website so people can hear them being said directly to me. What is the way to process that better would be my question with that. Because I think you need to be able to talk about it freely because it's like people fuck up and it's like it can't be edited from your past. You know, and I think I would hate there to be shame attached to something. Shame is not a bad thing in appropriate circumstances. It's a necessary, aversive... If you cause damage, and, you know, I've been very conscious, obviously, particularly in light of Trump trying to deny that anything in the media is real or true and how catastrophic that is just generally for the whole way for our ability to have a conversation about anything that matters mm. it's extreme it's absolutely right that journalists who you know are not absolutely scrupulous about that should be punished mm. and it is a shameful thing to get that wrong i mean i mean the context for me wanting to talk about it is that we're talking to you about you and your life and we're talking about your book obviously but you've done amazing things and i think it's really important to include things about people rather than censor them because that implies they're not allowed to happen and i think it's really important for everyone to know you can massively fuck up mm. that you we all massively fuck up and that's okay we have both talked about all sorts of things on this podcast <laughs> and and you know we're and talking in our about, friendship yeah and we're talking about you know grinder sex addiction all this stuff and what the only thing that has come out of that is more connection more people writing in saying i've done the same you know and actually it's like a balloon that's inflating if you could say to people here having heard everything you've said that i've found so enlightening what would you say to people could be the proactive things that people can do in terms of what we can do so for me understanding the reasons Understanding the real causes of depression and anxiety was only a stop on the road to understanding the solutions. And so uh, the the book, the last, I guess, third of the book is about the scientific evidence for seven 
different forms of solution, which are all forms of reconnection in one way or another. And I think the, the core of it is about we have to solve the problems that are driving this. Some, some are things where they require bigger social changes, some are things that people can do on their own. But, and some of them are these very individual things. For me personally, for example, one thing used to be that when I felt down, I would do something for myself, right? I would um, either try to gain status or treat myself in some material way. Now, I, I do that radically less. When I start to feel myself feeling down, I think, well, what can I do for someone else, right? Mm. What, how can I cheer someone else up? And what would you and do? Go and go on, young at the back. Go on, no, no, you're no. Talk- but is it like, is it as simple as knock on your neighbour's door and say, "What's happening with you this weekend? Do you have somewhere to have Sunday lunch?" All sorts of forms of reconnection. So, for example, I had a friend who went through a terrible tragedy. Her partner died. I just thought, just show up and yeah. keep being nice and just keep saying, "What would help you?" Listen, listen mm. closely. Mm. Keep doing stuff. There's all which has got kids, so there's always stuff you can do. So that would be an example mm. of that. That has a really profound antidepressant effect. There's, there's nothing that to me. There's no more beautiful words in the English language than "We need you here," mm. which again is different to this very individualistic way. We think about freedom is the priority, mm. but actually, mm. often the moments when you're happiest are when you're not free. Mm. Actually, when your child is born, you're not free. For me to wake up and think today I will go to the dog's home and help clear up the poo in their cages. I will really get pleasure out of helping with the maintenance and well-being and health of rescued dogs. I feel that's connection. And mostly shit fetishism, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think you're totally totally right. That's so funny. Sorry, I've slightly ruined your beautiful moment of connection there. No, I think you're totally right. And there was a place that really taught me this, and it might be a nice place to end up. There was this place I went where this crazy thing happened, and I think about it all the time. I think they think I'm mad because I go back every now and then and I just burst into tears because I find it so moving. So in 2001, in the the summer of 2001, a woman called Nuria Cengiz, who was in her 60s, a Turkish-German woman, put a sign in her window at the bottom of this council estate she lived in, in Berlin. And it just said something like, I'm being evicted from my house next Thursday because I can't pay the rent, so I'm going to kill myself on Wednesday night. That's all it said. She put this there, not because she expected anyone to help her. She didn't know people on this housing project. She didn't, you know, she just thought, fuck it, I'm going to put this sign there, right? She was in a wheelchair. And this was a big anonymous council estate where the rents had been rising a lot over the past few years. I mean, they have been all over Berlin, but particularly in this place. And lots of people were being thrown out of their houses. Anyway, people saw this sign and they started to knock on Nuria's door and they were like, do you need some help? And she was like, no, fuck off shut the door in their face. And this was a slightly weird part of Berlin. It was the bit of, um, when they built the wall in 1961, it was the bit of West Berlin that jutted into East Berlin. It's like a tooth, if you look at the map of the the wall. So it was the bit where if the Soviets had invaded, it would have been the front line. So basically the only people who wanted to live in this area for the whole time the wall was there were either gay people, punk squatters, or recent Turkish immigrants, who were all groups who looked at each other with a lot of suspicion, right? Mm. People didn't know each other. There was a lot of just isolation, loads of people on antidepressants. And one day, a group of the people there, some of the Turkish construction workers and some of the gay uh, students had this idea. They just were like, what if there's a big road that goes into the centre of Berlin outside this council estate? They were like, well, what if we just block the road for the day? We wheel Nuria out. The media will come. It'll be a big fuss and they'll let her stay in her house, right? So they, so they did this, they blockaded the, the, the street, the media did turn up, they interviewed Nuria, who's there in her headscarf, being a bit like, what the fuck is this? But she's like, okay, I'm going to kill myself. Um, and then it got to the end of the day, the media went, and the police come along and they say, okay, you've had your fun, take it down. And the people on this housing project were like, well, hang on a minute, you haven't said she can stay, and actually we want our rent frozen because we've 
we can't stay here if the rents keep rising. And so what happened is uh, Tanya, who, lives at, who lived at the top at the time, who was kind of like she's a woman in her 40s who wears a tiny miniskirt in Berlin winter. She's at hardcore. She's come as a punk she, in, the, in the 80s. She, she, Tanya said, right, oh, actually, I've got like a, what you call them, like a klaxon in my flat. I'll go and bring it down. What we'll do is we'll all sign up to man this barricade 24 hours a day. And if the police come, just hit the klaxon and we'll all come down and stop them, right? So people started signing up, people who'd never met each other in this housing project, and they all got to, you know, and so you had these completely random people, like a gay kid with a elderly Turkish guy. You had Tanya in her miniskirt with, with, with Nuria who, in her headscarf. Um, you had this guy called Mehmet, who was a young kind of hip-hop fan with this grumpy old German communist. Just these people who just would never have spoken to each other. And they're sitting there often through the night, and they, they started to make these connections. There was this incredible moment between Tanya and Nuria where... They kind of both realised they had come to Koti, this neighbourhood, as kind of runaways. Nuria had come when she was 17 from this village in, in Turkey, and she'd meant to, with her kids, and she'd meant to raise money to send for her husband, but her husband died back in, in, in Turkey. She was just stranded there alone with her kids, working all these jobs. Tanya had been thrown out by her kind of middle-class family. She'd come to Koti. She got pregnant when she was living in a squat. She was on her own. They both realised they were kind of runaways from this. They started finding these similarities between themselves. What happened is all these people got to know each other. You know, to cut a long story short, they got a rent freeze for that entire housing project. They got a referendum where they got a rent freeze for the whole of Berlin. Uh, it was the largest number of signatures for any referendum in the history of the city of Berlin. But when I spoke to them, Nuria said to me, you know, I got to stay in this house, right? I got to stay in my neighbourhood, which is great. But I gained so much more than that. I was surrounded by all these amazing people all along and I never knew it. And there was another woman... Um, and no one else did either. Exactly. Mm. Neriman, who's another woman who was part of the protest, Turkish German woman, said to me, you know, when I grew up in Turkey, I thought that what you called home was your village, right? And then I came to the West and I learned that what you call home is just your flat, right? And maybe your family if you're lucky. Mm. And when this protest happened, I started to call this whole place home again. And she realised that she had been homeless all the time she'd been living in the Western world. And in fact, that we are homeless because our sense of home is so small. It doesn't cover what we need. It doesn't give us a tribe. So it's yeah. part of that. And the other thing was, those people didn't need to be drugged. They needed to be together. Mm. And when they were together in this collective struggle, they began to see solutions that they would never have seen when they were alone. So Mehmet kept nearly being thrown out of school because he was, they kept saying he had ADHD. Actually, suddenly this group of people helping him with his schoolwork mm. meant that he actually didn't have some brain problem. It's just he needed some attention and some help. There were all these different people with all these different solutions. If you are broken up and you are alone and you are isolated and you're even told it's good to be an individualist, you will not find solutions to most of your problems because that doesn't meet your basic human needs. But if we are together, we begin to see solutions that were not clear to us before. So what we need to do is build a sense of home together because if we carry on with this isolated, broken up, materialist culture, telling people that the fact they feel like shit is because there's a brain, Im chemical imbalance in their brain, we will continue to have a, a growing crisis with depression, anxiety and addiction. But if we can deal with those deep underlying causes, we can begin to see the way out. I felt like I needed to lie down after that conversation in a good way. It's a lot of information though. He's very clever. Do you know what? I genuinely struggle to know what year it is sometimes. And that man has got dates and times at the tip of his fingers. We want to know what you guys think about it. There are lots of big ideas in there. Is anyone going to go and 
clear up a dog shit alley this week as a yes, result of yes, listening yes, to yes, Johan? Yes, yes, yes. Because I've had a look garden. at the garden. Yeah. Come, literally. I mean, now, actually, I joked about it, but actually, shit has what did come up. There's an explosion of poo in your garden this week. Yeah. But that's going to be sort your roses right out. I look at the plants. They are just, they're Looking thriving, great. people. If only you could, if only you could see. Garden makes me happy. In a way that I never no, thought... No human can. I knew. <laughs> Speaking of lost connections. No, no living human. What's coming up this week? I think we've got some meetings, haven't we, this week? No, because I'm in Los Angeles. You're in Los Angeles. We have absolutely no meetings this week. <laughs> so, for God's sake, look mm, at your diary. Yeah. What, and what will you be doing this week? So I'm working and I'm going to meet some surrogacy lawyers. You're going to meet surrogacy lawyers? Yeah. Oh, Chris. Can you get one for me as well? Yeah, I'll see what I can get on Norwegian luggage. I'm really jealous we're going to LA because it's going to be sunny. Where are you staying? Staying in Laurel Canyon, actually. Airbnb. An Airbnb in Laurel Canyon. Mm. Laurel Canyon, Joni Joni Mitchell. I'm going to wear caftans the entire time. I'm going to channel, totally channel Barbara Streisand. I could drink a case of you, (laughs) darling. Yes, that is absolutely. Help me, I think I'm falling. Have you got any any joysticks I can take? Have I? Yeah, have I? Have I got joysticks? I've got freaking caftan, sister. Yeah, I will supply you with everything. (gasps) Me in the pool in a caftan. So we will be skyping then, I presume. Yeah, our next from the second last from the house from the house. Yeah, not second last, last season finale. And you can get in touch by emailing hello at homosapienspodcast.com yeah. or tweeting uh, Will Young. And don't tweet Will at Young. Will Young Offy. Follow us on Instagram, people. Never yeah. said that before. Oh, no. At Homo Sapiens Podcast. Yes. Yeah, I'll do, do a picture of the shit that came up from the sewer. Yeah, I've tweeted that already. Oh, well done. What would our song be? We need to do a Barbara Streisand song. I am a homo in love. I'll do anything to get you into my heart. I will bring you some flowers and propose to you. That's how I approach dates. Yeah, it's working. What do I do? Nina, Nina, Nina. (laughs) Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Powered by Spirit Studios.